Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen. Well, friends, it's a joy to be back with you guys in Psalm 103 and back in this short series of psalms that reflect on what it means to be human and how what we know about ourselves drives us back to God in worship and dependence and in trust. That's the theme for Psalm 103 in a new angle to supplement what we've looked at in the first couple weeks of this series. Uh, this week, uh, for the first time in my life, I saw the Grand Canyon. Uh, it was from a plane. It was from 30,000 feet above, but that still counts. I saw it, and I wasn't expecting it. Uh, I was sitting there next to the window reading, actually trying to get a jump start on this sermon right here that I'm about to preach to you guys. Every now and then, glancing out the window... At what just seemed like mile, what was mile after mile after mile of desert, you know, just brown dirt and rock, and the occasional small mountain. That desert out there, my goodness, it's just it's vast. But then at one point, I happened to glance out the window and notice a river carving a squiggly little path 
through the dirt and the rock. And a little further on, I noticed a, a big shelf that dropped off in steps down to the current path of the river. And I thought to myself, that's a canyon. And then I realized, that's a big canyon. And I thought, you might even call that a grand canyon. And so I whipped out my phone, held it up to the window, thought, my boys will think this is cool, snapped a quick picture, went back to my reading. But I was a little more attuned to the window at this point. Got my eye glancing up and down at it. The next thing I know, I see another canyon, another squiggly path through the rock, even bigger and more broad shelves separated from one another. I think, maybe that's the Grand Canyon. So I whip out my phone, take a picture of that one just in case, go back to my reading. A few minutes later, glance back up. You know what I saw? Another squiggly path, the rock and the dirt, even bigger shelf, even more fingers going out, stretching across. And I thought, surely that one's the Grand Canyon. I kid you not, that happened at least four or five times to me as I was flying across this vast desert. So much so that I just, I, I, I began to just second guess myself. I mean, where am I even? Am I even in the right area for the Grand Canyon? I, what does the Grand Canyon look like? I, I mean, I know I've seen pictures, but... And then... Then we got to the real thing. And there's a reason that nearly six million people a year drive out into the absolute middle of nowhere just to stand on the edge of that thing and contemplate the meaning of their lives. It is vast. It's really indescribable how big this thing is, even from 30,000 feet up. It, it really just looked like it was everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you looked in every direction, there it was, as far as the eye could see. Maybe this experience struck me the way it did, because at the exact same time, I, I'm reading Psalm 103 over and over and over on this plane. I'm, I'm taking notes about the things that jump out at me, and I'm realizing that, that, that really the way this psalm opens reminds me a lot of my experience flying closer and closer to the Grand Canyon. The psalm opens with David calling on himself to worship God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not his benefits. And then he starts listing them off. One after another after another. Is this the Grand Canyon? Is, is this the Grand Canyon? Is this the Grand Canyon? He forgives your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good. On and on he goes. And then he gets to the middle of the psalm. And in between the few verses at the beginning, which call his soul to worship the Lord, and the few verses at the end, which call his soul and everything else to worship the Lord, David gives us a set of verses that talk not about God's benefits, but about God. And what you realize when you get to verse 6 is that God is the greatest benefit. Not what gifts we expect to get from him, as wonderful as those are. God, in his character, is the benefit that we can't afford to forget.
And that's because this character that characterizes God, this, his nature, it's just always true of him. And his benefits, all the individual gifts we expect to get from him, they flow out of this character of God, this permanent, unchangeable, always there nature of God. As surely as the Colorado River has been flowing through that desert year after year, after century, after century, after millennium, after millennium, God is the chief benefit. And to make that case, in the central section of this psalm, David shows us the truth about ourselves and how God responds to this truth. At the center of the psalm, to show us who we have in God, David shows us ourselves and how God responds to us. Two main ideas come out of this central section of the psalm. I just meditate on them with you for the time we have left. God removes our sin. And God remembers our weakness. God removes our sin. That's what kind of God he is. And God remembers our weakness. That's who we have in him. Let me show you. First, God removes our sin. This is the theme of verses 6 to 12. Here David begins to unpack the benefits that he's been listing off in the first five verses. Think of those first five verses as kind of like an overture to a big piece of music. Some of the themes are introduced. He's going to develop them later. And he starts that development right here in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, he says. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. They are with him now, his readers. They know what he's thinking of. He's thinking about the exodus. He's thinking about that time when Israel was trapped in Egypt under the thumb of the most powerful man in their world uh, with nothing else to do except groan to God for help. They're thinking about the time when God heard their groaning and knew. And when God came to them in their captivity to set them free. That's what they're thinking about. That's how they know that God works righteousness and justice for those who are oppressed. Those are the ways that God showed to Moses. Those are the acts that the people of Israel saw for themselves firsthand. That's what's on David's mind. But, but as we keep reading, as we get to verse 8, what we see is, is that mainly on David's mind, when he thinks back at the story of the Exodus and, and Israel coming out into the wilderness and making their journey to the promised land, when he thinks about that, when he thinks about what God showed them then, Primarily, what's on his mind is not what I would expect. It isn't the plagues that he's thinking about. You know, when, when God, with, with a word, sends frogs and bugs down onto Egypt until they were miserable. When, when God turned the Nile to, to, to blood. When he spread darkness over the land. When he even took the firstborn son of every person in Egypt that did not trust in him and put the blood over the door these plagues these acts of power those are what I'm thinking about and that's what I would expect David to be thinking about or maybe maybe when Israel gets out of Egypt and they're running from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's bearing down on them because he's changed his mind and their their backs are up against the Red Sea and they've got nowhere else to turn God parts the sea and creates dry land for them to walk on maybe he's thinking about that that's incredible then God collapses that sea back to its place just in time to destroy the enemies who wanted to kill his people. That's not what's on David's mind. Maybe I would expect him to think about the fact that when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness, they didn't have anything to eat. And there was nothing to hunt. And there was no way to grow crops. 
They were completely exposed and alone. And they even, even grumbled against God, who so recently had delivered them, as if now they couldn't trust him anymore. They forgot how good he had been. They grumbled and complained. And you know what God did? sent bread down from the sky to feed them every day. Every day they woke up without lifting a finger to find bread and meat for themselves to eat. Maybe that's what he has on his mind. And that's not it at all. No, what he has on his mind, we know from verse 8. What he has on his mind is, is what happened When Israel, despite all that God had given them, despite all that he had done for them, turned against him, made an idol for themselves out of gold, bowed down and worshipped it. When Israel worshipped that golden calf in the wilderness, Moses prayed to God for mercy that he knew this people didn't deserve. And in Exodus chapter 34, God spoke his response. He revealed his character. He defined himself for Moses and for Israel. And David is basically quoting in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. David is amazed by God's mercy, by his grace toward sinners who doubt him and reject him, even when he's done so much for them, just like Israel did. He's amazed that God is slow to anger, that he isn't quick-tempered, that when he is angry, he doesn't feed his anger. He doesn't hold on to it or nurse it. He's... he doesn't, he doesn't keep his anger forever, verse 9. And, and David's amazed that he chooses not to deal with people according to their sins. He just won't let their flaws define who they are to him. He doesn't give them what they deserve. And it's not just that he holds back or looks the other way. David goes on to show us that, that he actually takes care of the problem. He sees the sin, he acknowledges the sin, and he removes the sin. Look at verse 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. How do we know? Because as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is that? East from west. That's infinitely far. That's unreachably far. And that's who God is. This is what stuns David and calls him to call his own soul to bless the Lord. This is that that Grand Canyon, not just any individual gift or benefit we might have received moment by moment from his hand, but God, a God who by nature is slow to anger and full of love. And there is good reason, friends, reasons that David didn't even know to focus on God's forgiveness as exhibit A of his ways, his acts toward his people. You know, again, we might would have expected him to start with the mighty miracles that brought an empire to its knees. Those things seem so hard to us 
sending plagues from on high, parting seas, creating bread that just falls from the sky. That seems hard. That's something we couldn't do. But it cost God nothing to send plagues on Egypt, nothing to part the Red Sea. It cost him nothing to supply bread from heaven. But when God chose not to deal with us according to our sins, when he chose to remove from us all of our transgressions, we now know what David couldn't possibly know. We know what this mercy cost him. To remove our sins as far as the east is from the west, God had to bridge the distance between heaven and earth. He had to enter our world through his son, Jesus. To remove our sins as far as the east is from the west, God had to lay the weight of those sins on the shoulders of Christ. He was crushed for our transgressions, those that God removed. Healing us meant wounding him. To remove our sins, as David says God has done, it cost him his only begotten son. This is the measure of his love, this steadfast love as high as the heavens. And if, and if this morning the notion of, of the heavens versus the earth or east from the west feels abstract and impersonal to you, try this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It doesn't get more personal than that. I love the way an old pastor named Thomas Watson captures this truth. He's talking about the fact that, you know, it, that, that, that what God has given us in Christ is more precious than if he had given us all the world, more costly. He said, to give us Christ is more than if God had given us all the world. He can make more worlds. But he has no more Christs to bestow. Friends, this is, this is our first glimpse into the Grand Canyon that is the character of our God. He's the kind of God who would give up what was most precious to him to redeem those who treated him like garbage. And that's because he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And when we see this truth about him, when we see that God removes our sin, it changes how we see ourselves and it changes how we see one another. Isn't it true that there are a few things that do more to poison our lives, to just remove our joy, to rob us of joy in life, than guilt over what we've done wrong and can't shake, or bitterness toward others for what they've done wrong to us. I guess it's another way of saying that we tend to remember what God chooses to forget, don't we? This psalm right here is the remedy that we need. It changes, it could change how we see ourselves, first of all. If you're here with us this morning and not yet a Christian, maybe what drove you in here is the of your past, a burden made up of failures you can't erase or outrun. It, 
If you came in here under that weight this morning, uh, you've come to the right place. Uh, That's what we're here for. That is what Christianity is all about. It is about relieving burdens like the one you're carrying. You've come to the right place, and we're so glad you're here. And our job is to tell you on God's behalf, as an ambassador from him, based on what he said in his word, that you won't actually find freedom from what you're carrying this morning just by lightening up a bit, you know, by, by attempting to shrug your shoulders, to, to just accept that you're only human, you're not perfect, maybe show yourself a little compassion. If your failures only affected you, maybe that would work. If you could convince yourself to lighten up about them. But because your failures often affect others, well, I mean, no one's going to tell you to show compassion to yourself if you steal somebody else's car. That's not a way to deal with that problem. There's an effect from what you've done. It's got to be addressed because it matters. It's bigger than you. And all sin is like that. If you shrug your shoulders at it, you might get a moment's peace, but it'll just come crushing right back down on you sooner or later. And you won't find any freedom by trying harder next time either. As if your job in life now is to overcome what you've done wrong by outweighing it with what you do right. I know we love redemption stories. Uh, We love stories where the hero slips and falls and gets back up again and proves all the critics wrong. And it's so appealing to us when we look at things we, we wish we had done differently to try to overcome that track record with a new day. But that's just adding one crushing burden on top of another. The burden to perform and to keep it up on top of how you've already fallen short. There's only one way to freedom. That's if you bring your burden to God, to the God who is slow to anger, the God who is abounding in love. That means acknowledging before him that you have actually sinned, that you have been less than what he called you and created you to be, that you have failed and can't undo what you've done. It starts there. And then it looks like appealing to him for what he loves to give for what he by nature will give you. A steadfast love that your sin cannot outweigh, cannot overcome. Now, my fellow Christians, we know, don't we, that becoming a Christian doesn't put an end to our struggle with guilt over sin. Here, David is calling us to remember the only way to cope. We can't forget his benefits, who he is and what he's done. The the reality is that that sometimes our sin will affect people in our lives that that won't be able to forget what we've done. Sin does have consequences. And sometimes that will mean relationships that aren't fully restored despite what, uh, or rather because of what you've done. But no one could pay a higher cost than God has paid to forgive you. God has paid that cost willingly. He's paid that cost with great joy. He's removed your sin. He remembers it no more. And it's not for you or for me to remember what God has chosen to forget. This is the only way out from under that burden. This truth about God affects how we see each other too. When we've tasted the forgiveness that God offers to us and we see what he's done to remove our sins for us, 
Uh, that's got to start changing what we do with the sins of other people against us over and over through the New Testament. That's what the writers tell us. That's what Jesus says in his parable about the, the debtor who was forgiven a lifetime worth of debt that he couldn't possibly pay, then goes out and, and has, has another man who owed him like a month's wage thrown into prison over it. Jesus says that's what it's like when you expect forgiveness from God and deny it to one another. And Paul in his letters, Ephesians 4, he says... Be kind to one another and tenderhearted and forgive one another. What does that sound like? It's Psalm 103. As God in Christ forgave you, he says. Colossians 3, same message. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on, put on a character that looks like his. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another like the God who is slow to anger. And and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other like the God who removes sin. This is what we promise to one another when we join our church. In the covenant that we, that we make to one another when we become members at Edgefield, there's a line in there that's based exactly on what, what we hear about God in Psalm 103. We promise this. We promise that we will extend to one another the grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. And that that will mean remaining slow to take offense and quick to seek reconciliation. That's Psalm 103 applied to a local church. With God as our model, I think built into this promise, there are four commitments that we've made. I just want to remind you of them. We've promised that we'll be really tough to bother. To put it in Psalm 103 language, we will be slow to anger. We'll give the benefit of the doubt to one another. We'll assume the best about each other's motives. We will look for a way not to take this thing personally. And because sometimes it will be personal, sometimes there will be sin committed against us, because we know that, because we expect that, we make this promise. Not just to be slow to take offense, but also quick to seek reconciliation, which leads to the second commitment built into this promise. We will not dwell on what happened. We won't just stew on it. We won't look at it every which way, like a diamond under a microscope, catching every facet, every glimmer of light. We won't do that as natural as that comes. We'll do the hard work of shutting that down in ourselves because dwelling on it may be exactly what we want to do. But that's quicksand. That's not a path forward. It's quicksand. It swallows you up. The third commitment we make inside that promise is that we will not bring what happened against one another back up and throw it in each other's faces. Another way to put that is we won't punish one another with the sins committed against us. God doesn't punish us. How can we punish each other? Forgiveness means removing the transgression it means forgetting it. It means agreeing we won't use it anymore. We don't have a right to remember what God has chosen to forget. Sometimes we use Romans 8 uh, to, to encourage ourselves not to worry what others think about us. You know that promise in Romans 8 that if God has, not, if, if God has justified us in Christ, who is there to condemn us? That's the right way to use that text. Nobody gets to judge you if God has justified you. But you know that also applies to how we see other people. If our brothers and sisters in Christ are justified by God in Christ, who are we to condemn them? 
Who are we to hold on to something they've done against us as if it matters more than what they've done against God and been forgiven for? We don't get to throw the sins of others back in their faces. And finally, fourth commitment built into that promise, we won't talk to other people about what happened. Because, friends, no community of grace and peace can survive if the people in it have to wonder who's saying what about them. I mean, especially when there's been sin involved. This promise is, is a baked-in expectation that we sin against each other in our life together, even as believers. It's a promise of how we'll handle it when that inevitable thing happens. And if there's sin involved and how you've been treated by someone else, you can't talk to other people about that. You talk about somebody else's sin to others, what may feel like a, a burden lifted for you is a burden placed on the person you talk to. Now they've got to deal with that when it wasn't theirs. And you know, it can destroy the safety and security that the church as family connection that we're aiming for to the one that you're talking about. And it could even destroy that safety for the one you're unloading to because they may be thinking, is this what they'll do when I sin against them? Will they talk to others about me instead of talking to me? When we promise that we're going to be quick to seek reconciliation, we are promising that we're going to snuff out the problem, not amplify it. We're assuming sometimes we're going to wrong each other. And we're committing that when it happens, we're going to come to one another for peace. We're not going to go to other people for allies. And, and you know, friends, you can, you can be part of us building this culture, even when you're on the receiving end of someone else bringing something to you, something negative that someone else did to them, you can be a part of pushing them to seek peace. You, that, that, will mean, that will mean not being flattered that you were trusted with it. That will mean not indulging the joy of passing it on as somebody, who, somebody who's in the know. It will mean knowing that, that we cannot allow ourselves to deepen one friendship at the expense of another not at the expense of someone else in our community. We want friendships that are based on a shared love that we've all tasted, not based on a shared grievance that we want others to understand and participate in. We, we want this kind of community, not just because we want freedom and, and family, don't we? we? We want this kind of community ultimately because our souls bless the Lord who has loved us like that. And our job in our life together is to glorify him by reflecting him as best we can, wherever we can, especially when our relationships are strained by sin. God is a God who removes sin. He creates a people who do the same. And that brings me to point number two, the second simple truth at the heart of this psalm. And the second truth about God and his character that we see when we look at what God sees in us. Number two, God remembers our weakness. That's verses 13 to 19. God remembers our weakness. I love this. God forgives us not to send us on our way in peace, back into the world on our own, but to draw us into deeper and deeper relationship to him. He's not just a judge who, who stamps a, a, a piece of paper, not guilty, and then moves on to the next case. But he's a father who forgives to draw in 
a father who forgives to embrace. That's the second emphasis in the psalm, this second glance into the grand canyon of God's character. He's one who forgets our sin but remembers our weakness. Look at verse 12, or excuse me, verse 13. David says that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He's comparing God here to a father. Because God is a father, what David shows us in these next few verses, first of all, our weaknesses are never overlooked. What does it mean that God relates to us as a father? On the backside of removing our sin, now a relationship of fatherhood to us. What does that mean? Well, it means our weaknesses are never overlooked. That's what he has in mind in verse 13. That's what he has in mind in verse 14. When he says that God knows our frame, that means he knows how we're built. And what is it that he knows about our frame? He knows that we're not framed with steel beams, not with reinforced concrete, not even framed with two by fours of pine wood. He remembers, verse 14, that we're dust. He remembers, verse 15, that our days are like grass. You know, we flourish like flowers for a moment, he says, but we're gone with the wind in a moment too. He's using images that echo what we looked at last week from Psalm 90, which itself echoes Genesis 3, which we looked about at earlier this spring. It points to the, 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 the fact that our lives just don't last forever. But, but you know, these images, this, to speak of these things as our frame, points to more than the fact that our lives are gone in a flash. It's about more than transience. What he's pointing to is our vulnerability, that we're just so easily blown away. That we can, be, we can be trampled and bruised. We're, we're relentlessly needy. Like grass, we depend on water and just the right amount of sun. Our, our bodies can't go f- without food for very long without breaking down. We can go even less time without water. We can't go for very long without sleep. I learned that again this week. I went to a Dodgers game on Wednesday night. I was out west for this work trip. Went to a game at Dodgers Stadium. Figured we'd leave early from the game because we had a really early flight the next morning. I'm talking about boarding at 4 a.m. kind of early. But we didn't leave early from the game because the starting pitcher took a no-hitter into the ninth inning. And, of course, we had to stay. So we ended up going to bed around midnight. Still had to leave for the airport around 3. That wasn't enough sleep for me. That's never been enough sleep for me, especially isn't enough sleep for me as an almost 40-year-old man. My vulnerable body is still not over the effects of that night, if you want to call it that. And maybe the best example of all of our vulnerability is the fact that we can't live without breath. My whole body comes to a halt without a hit of the most available and basic commodity around. Two minutes without air to breathe And I'm a dead man. Who wouldn't give? What wealthy person, what powerful person wouldn't give everything they own for another breath if it was denied to them? And I'm just talking now about the vulnerability of our bodies and their basic functions. That's just the beginning, though. At our best, even when we're fully healthy, we can't predict the future. We can't control what's going to happen to us. 
And every time we lay down our heads to sleep for the night, we lie there completely exposed until we wake again. And David is telling us here, our Father knows about that. He remembers our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. Our weaknesses are never overlooked by him. We can also see that our weaknesses are never annoying to him. That's back to verse 13. David says that the Lord shows compassion like a father. Compassion suffers with, enters into what affects his children. He sees our weakness, our relentless neediness, and he's not annoyed by it. He's drawn in by it. That's what stands behind the word compassion. He's not a neutral bystander. He's not annoyed that we're back again. He's not distracted by whatever happens to be on his phone. What affects us moves him. Our weakness draws him in. Summer or two ago, we were trying to help our youngest child learn to swim. And, you know, I don't have any sort of master plan for that. I didn't watch any YouTube videos. I'm just sort of taking off the puddle jumper and seeing how far I could get. But always right there. And eventually, I mean, he would kick, maybe move his arms a couple times, get as far as he could. But eventually, early on especially, I mean, he's just thrashing in the water. If we're not standing there with him, he, he, he would drown. It's not really swimming. It's just water movement. But you know where I was? Because I'm his father? Right there. And you know what I'm thinking as he's thrashing around in the water? Seriously, Benji, again with the drowning. We're, we're going to have to do this again? I'm going to have to pick you up? No. When I see him struggling... It moves my heart in a whole different way. I'm drawn in by it. I'm closer because of it. That's what it means that a father has compassion to his children. God is a dad like that. When he sees us struggling, when he sees us needing him, it activates his loving care, the care he loves to give because that's who he is by his nature. And there can be no better example of this, guys, in the incarnation of Jesus that we read about earlier in our service, Hebrews 4. What sent Jesus here? God's desire to set for us, once and for all, a high priest who gets it, who's been there, who can sympathize, that's the language, with our weaknesses. That's who we have in him. That's who God is. And because God is our Father, not only are our weaknesses never overlooked, not only are our weaknesses never annoying to Him, our weaknesses are never, ever overwhelming. David rounds off this picture of God with a reminder that God is not limited like we are. Our lives, he said, they're like grass, like dust. They're easily just blown away and their place doesn't know them anymore. His love, though, verse 17... His love is steadfast. It's from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. It's immovable. And verse 19 takes us to another truth here. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He reigns from a throne that will never, ever crumble. 
Why does, why does David take us to this truth about God? How steadfast his love is. How, how he rules over all. I, I think it's because he knows that it's one thing to have somebody who can, who can sympathize with your weakness, but another thing to have somebody who can help you. I mean, I love having friends who've been there. It is a really sweet thing to have someone say, oh, yeah, that hurts. I know. I went through it. Uh, pastors are giving each other a lot of that sort of care and counsel these days. You know, on the backside of, a, of COVID, you know, a couple of hard years for everybody I know who's in ministry. Sometimes pastors gatherings just look like everybody giving knowing glances to one another and saying, yeah, two years, huh? That was rough. But none of those guys can help me with what I'm dealing with. I can't help them with what they're dealing with. Maybe every now and then we've got some advice for one another. Mostly we just offer empathy. And that counts for something. But it doesn't count for everything. We need help. We need actual help. We need someone who rules over all, who also cares and gets it. That's the combination we need to be secure in this life. And David is saying, that's who you've got in him. Look at the Grand Canyon with me. Not what he gave you yesterday, but who he is. What he gave you yesterday matters. It fills in the picture. It helps you to trust him. But what you need to know is who he is always from everlasting to everlasting. And you need to know where he reigns on his throne, which rules over all. And he offers this help, sympathetic and powerful help. David tells us, to all who fear him. To all, in other words, who look carefully at their own frame, at their own sin and sorrow, at their own neediness and vulnerability, and fear him rather than trusting in themselves. Under the first point, we talked about how we tend to remember what God has promised to forget. You know how hard it is for us to look past our own sins and past the sins of others? It's also true, friends, that we tend to forget what God remembers. We tend to forget that we're needy and so is everybody else around us. How much of our busyness and our overworking and our disappointment with ourselves and our disappointment with others comes from forgetting that God, he actually designed us to be needy before sin ever entered the picture. He designed us to look to him for our food. That's Genesis 1. And in the fight for remembering who we are, for remembering our frame and the frames of all of our friends, this psalm is yet again the remedy that we need every day in every season. The best remedy we have is to look at God looking at us and then to bless him for what we see. That's the only real command in this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And it's a command David gives to himself so that we could give that same command to ourselves. Why did David need to tell himself to bless the Lord? Don't you think it's because he wasn't feeling it? Because in that moment, he was struggling to remember. He was tempted to forget God's benefits. He was tempted to live as if he didn't have this God for his father. And so he stirs himself up. Bless the Lord no matter what you feel. Bless the Lord no matter what you're facing. Bless the Lord because he is with you and he is glorious. 
I guess what I'm saying is that you can sing this praise to God no matter what you're feeling this morning. In fact, you need this praise most when you're feeling at your lowest. This psalm is an invitation to talk back to yourself about God who sees you exactly as you are, who loves you with a steadfast love, who removes your sin and who remembers always your weakness and who is with you. Let's pray now that the Lord will give us this memory. Father, we, we know how difficult it is for us to see you in the midst of whatever else calls for our attention. We know how quickly we feel overwhelmed by circumstances we didn't ask for. How quickly our minds run to the what-ifs of the future we can't control. How relentlessly we can sometimes feel pulled back into a past that we can't undo. We know how tempted we are to forget who we have in you. And so we ask you to stir up our souls to bless you. We ask you by your spirit to remind us of who you are so that we can worship you in the way you deserve. And we pray that you would use the words of this beautiful psalm to do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.